This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 5. Tonight we'll be discussing the Criterion Collection releases for June 2016. I'm Ryan Gallagher, and tonight I'm joined by a panel of Criterion scholars to discuss these home <laughs> video releases. <laughs> Come on, guys, I have, to, uh, I have to talk us up a little bit. Academics, guys. <laughs> Credentialed all. Indeed. All right, David Blakesley. How's it going tonight, David? Oh, my precious bodily fluids are all intact, so I'm ready to roll. <laughs> and we have Arik Devins. Hey, Arik. Hey, I'm in the pink. Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Hello. And Aaron West. Hey, Aaron. Uh, I'm going to owe the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> so, a big, a big month for Criterion this month. Six new films added to the collection. No upgrades, but uh, definitely six amazing titles that were a lot of fun to watch over the past month. Tonight we'll be going in order through the month, talking about the various releases and their supplements and the films contained within. Um, But before we get into our usual discussion, I just wanted to ask everyone how the Barnes & Noble sale is treating you. Last week I talked a little bit with Scott about the the sale and, um, you know, went over, like, the... The joys of waiting for coupons uh and then after we re- ended up recording i ended up going and buying some stuff and then bought even more uh yesterday <laughs> um yesterday there was this like this this giant discount code that was going around that took an additional 25 percent off uh if you spent over a hundred dollars and uh, everyone went a little nuts, I think, or at least I went a little nuts. And then I saw some other people who had spent, you know, several hundred dollars uh, because that coupon code was just too good to pass up. But someone unfortunately, someone on the in the Facebook group spent like eight hundred dollars. Yeah, I saw mm. that. That might be the biggest uh, transaction that I've ever seen anyone post uh, for Criterion Collection. You know, collecting. Very impressive, and a little crazy, but very impressive. I mean, when you spend that much all in one go, it feels like you're kind of cheating at getting complete uh, just because it's like, you know, the joy is like going, you know, one or two at a time over the course of many years and not just like doing it all in one pass. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But maybe I just didn't have $800 to spend. I know. Time. It might just be that I'm incredibly <laughs> jealous, too. <laughs> a lot of shrink wrap. <laughs> yeah, I know. Can you imagine getting a box with that many titles in it and having to open them all up? I mean, I guess we can. No, I can (laughs) very much so. (laughs) You've had some big ones there, and I remember from previous years. Yeah, I tried to try to economize, but I bought ten this time. I thought that was kind of a lot, but Hmm, that is kind of like seven, and that felt like a lot. (laughs) Yeah, for Scott, that is a lot, definitely. (laughs) That is a huge amount. Yeah, I I bought four, but before the the sparkler coupon, so I I, that's one curse of not uh, not needing many is you can't spend. And get the big savings so oh well was that janice box set available yesterday for the, like using that sparkler coupon code Ooh, i didn't see anyone posting that they went and bought that but when i saw the coupon code i thought that was kind of like the big purchase that i had in mind like huh i wonder if if this is available you know in stock through their website like i wonder if anyone's going to get that just because that would be a pretty significant discount on top of it it is. It's four hundred and twenty-five dollars. But yeah, you yep. could have gotten could have gotten an extra twenty-five percent off. Well, I didn't do it, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> that would be three hundred. That's actually pretty good. It's like three hundred bucks total. Mm-hmm. But it is just a bunch of DVDs. 
Right. It's, it, it's six bucks a disc. So and you know, a, a big and book, a book too. And a big book. <laughs> yeah. And just kind of a a brag piece. You know, you, you've got it. You know, it's one of those <sighs> items that are kind of scarce and rare now. But would you actually watch the discs, or would you just go to your Blu-rays? Someday it will be mine. Oh yes, <laughs> it will be mine. That's the last thing I'll buy. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the June releases. Um, tonight we'll be starting off with the Antonioni film Le Amiche, and uh, to discuss the release tonight, Scott, you watched the film. What did you think of it? Well, I'd seen this film a few times. The first time I saw it was actually back in Portland at the good old Hollywood Theater. Uh, I got a 35 millimeter print of this film, if you can believe it, back in 2010. Um, then I revisited it a couple of years ago for the website and wrote a review of the Masters Cinema Edition, and then coming back around to me now and needless to say i guess with that kind of history i really love this film uh, i'm a big antonioni film fan all around and this is kind of a great meeting place i think for those who are either fans of his of his like 60s and on work or who are kind of coming in from like a golden age kind of classic hollywood approach because it's really good kind of melding place of that kind of 60s art house aesthetic with kind of the golden age melodrama the heightened feelings there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of plots, a lot of interconnected characters going on. Um, it's about this woman who arrives in Turin from Rome uh, to open up a beauty shop, kind of a dress store. And the what I gather to be the first night she's there, a woman in the room next to her tries to commit suicide. And she, the dress shop woman, kind of gets pulled into this woman's social circle and all her friends and kind of because she has nothing else to do besides open the store. She doesn't really have a social life in Turin. She becomes pretty intimately involved with all of them. And it's a really fascinating movie about kind of a lot of the things Antonioni would go on to explore in perhaps more subtle ways, but I think just as effectively done here with more overt methods of the way people kind of relate to one another and the distance and isolation people feel. I think the really big distinction in this is that uh, that isolation is kind of self-imposed. The people in Le Amique, uh they kind of put other people off. They kind of distance themselves from one another. Um, they're kind of always contextualizing others' lives into however they fit into their own lives. It's not, they don't really see them as people. Whereas in the kind of 60s and later work, it was about protagonists who felt isolated uh, due to something the world did or some nature of society. It wasn't, you know, they were constantly trying to reach out, but they couldn't quite connect because you know some larger force was against them but this it's really internally motivated and there's no real purely sympathetic character in there i mean even the woman who tries to commit suicide is later portrayed as kind of vapid and shallow and kind of uh short-sighted in some ways and uh the main character too you know she has a lot of uh blame to bear for uh what happens to a lot of the other characters and she in the process of getting roped in that social world she kind of becomes one of them in a lot of ways and yeah it's just a really fascinating you know story with at least a half a dozen fairly major characters who all feel i feel like anyway within a fairly short time frame i mean this is a 104 minute movie they all kind of get their due and you really get a, a sense of this world um so yeah this was a real pleasure to revisit and 
I hope that other people give it a shot. I know it's kind of a slim edition, which we can get into in a second. But first, I wanted to know if anyone else managed to give this a watch before the month was over. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, this is David here. I, I, I was really impressed. Uh, I had not seen any Antonioni, uh, you know, pre La Ventura. Um, but I, even though I've only seen this 60s stuff, uh, I do consider myself a fan. Uh, I was pretty intrigued just to sort of see, you know, how he was emerging from. Uh, I don't know, just maybe more conventional, melodramatic Italian film. Of course, I've you know, I've watched the early Fellini stuff and the Raffaello Matarazzo Eclipse set, which is kind of over-the-top melodrama. This is much more cool and stylish, uh, and it's a you know, visually a very beautiful movie just in terms of the, the fashion and the just the looks. I mean, there's just something about the... Uh, you know, the Italian actors and the situations that these characters are in that I just find very aesthetically pleasing, you know, the music, uh, you know, you see a little, you know, emerging hints of Antonioni's use of, you know, architecture and the way he kind of frames his characters in these different spaces. It's not quite as, uh, you know, stylistically developed as what you see in the, in the 60s films where, you know, setting and atmosphere and 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 all that really just comes to the forefront. And uh, you know, like like Scott said, there's a lot of characters here rather than just a few. And there's no, there's not exactly a Monica Vitti type here, but uh, it's kind of actually kind of a nice change of pace if if that's what you kind of think of when Antonioni's name is is mentioned. Uh, this is a bit of a sleeper uh, film uh, compared to some of the other you know major releases of the month, but. I, I really enjoyed it quite a bit and uh, definitely recommend it. Yeah, I think the way the characters exist in space and the costumes and stuff definitely speaks to his later work. And this is kind of coming on the edge right before kind of modernity would completely take over Italian culture and kind of get some hints of post-war life. You know, the main character is originally from Turin. She speaks about uh, the lower class areas in a way that kind of reminds us of all the uh, trauma and strife they've been through but then you know you get the dress shop that she's establishing the character kind of placing the fun and pleasure above all else that we'd see later in La Dolce Vita and La Ventura um, be easy for a lot of these decisions to kind of be purely condemning of society as a whole but I think here Antonio takes a somewhat more sympathetic approach than he did in his later films of recognizing the appeal that uh, this culture had to a uh, people who were just kind of emerging from a really traumatic event. Did anyone else manage to see it, or is this still eluding some? Well, I just got it today in the mail from the Barnes & Noble sale, and I didn't get a chance to watch it before I sent you uh, that copy, but I, I'm very interested in checking it out. I mean, I've, I've seen several of other uh, Antonioni's films, and I mean, this is the earliest of the of his films that Criterion has now released, um, so it'd be interesting to see you know where he was coming from. I haven't watched many of his early stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend going much earlier. Uh, the film he made right uh, before this, I think it's called The Lady with Camellias or something. I can't remember the title exactly, but that's pretty good. Uh, his first film, I think it's his first story of a love affair, is not, it's a little rougher. Um, but this, I think he really comes into his own. Uh, the supplements, they have a good conversation with scholars, uh, David Forgex and Karen Pincus, uh, as Criterion says rather vaguely, on the film's themes, um, which allows them to cover a lot of ground. And I, um, I read some negative notices about that particular featurette, but I really liked it. And they pointed out something about the main character that I hadn't noticed at all and kind of threw the whole film into a new way of seeing it. And now I really want to watch it again through that lens. Uh, I think the standout that a lot of people noted right away was uh, Eugenia, uh, oh, I should have pronounced his, film, his name beforehand, 
uh, Eugenia Policelli. Policelli. <laughs> sure, that works. Uh, <laughs> on the importance of fashion in Antonio's work. And you know, I'm a huge fan of melodrama and these kind of women's pictures from the period, but I do not know much about fashion, so I always appreciate these kind of insights. Uh, the essay by uh, Tony Popolo is a little rougher. I, I think it kind of falls into the easy trap with these kind of films of overly comparing it to his to Antonio's later work and doing so in kind of an unfavorable fashion. You know, I think this film perfectly well stands up on its own and doesn't need to, you know, he's working in a different mold here than he would in La Ventura, but uh, it's equally valid, I think, and equally effective. Yeah, I did see it, um, although it was four weeks ago, and that seems like forever <laughs> ago. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I did enjoy it. No, I, I love Antonioni, um, and, and I think this actually suffered for me because I, I couldn't help but compare it to his later work, um, even uh, Il Grido, which came just a couple years later. But, and, and it's a little different because it's an ensemble piece, but but I, I did enjoy, I think for Antonio Antonioni fans, it's nice to see sort of his aesthetic developing uh, and then would lead to stuff like Il Grido and then later his um, his trilogy and his American work. But how did this one compare, uh, Scott, to the Masters of Cinema disc? I'm just I'm looking through the DVD Beaver review just to look at some of the screenshots. But um, how was that other one, you know, supplement wise? Uh, supplement wise is kind of the same they had an interview with gabe Klinger, who kind of just went over the kind of a general approach to the film and to its place in antonio's career i mean i haven't watched it since i got that disc four years ago or whatever but yeah. i remember it being a pretty solid supplement um so i think either edition kind of has its benefits uh, i don't think there's kind of a clear winner it's sourced from the same transfer it looked about the same even compared to the dvd i could tell that you know it, the blu-ray that masters cinema put out would probably give it a small bump but it either edition would probably be equally valid there and then supplements uh master simmons booklet is probably more elaborate actually knowing them i don't have a copy of that on hand but um so yeah i think it's kind of a wash either way whichever you can get cheaper but i would definitely recommend people pick it up and if anyone wants to it's available to watch on criterion's itunes channel if you want to give it a if you want to rent it i'm sure you can rent it on amazon too before you uh, end up picking up the Blu-ray, but you know it is a sale right now, so it's definitely a good time to pick up some of these titles that you might not uh, want to spend, you know, full price on. For sure. All right. Well, let's move on now to Aaron's film of the evening, the Jean Renoir film La Chienne. Yes, uh, really two films, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty big uh, Jean Renoir fan. And uh, so I, w- I was really eagerly anticipating this one. Uh, very, very happy to to see that it finally came to fruition. Um, so, and, and as a Renoir junkie, I think I enjoy this probably in a, maybe a different way. Or, but, but I, I think it stands uh, stands up. Maybe not with his, you know, not with Grand Illusion, Rules of the Game, but um, uh, up with uh, much of his '30s work. Uh, so, and I, I think with a lot of Criterion discs, they do a good job of outlining, uh, you know, a, a transition or a period in somebody's career. And I think that's definitely the case here because you have his first sound film, and and previously he'd made a lot of silent films. Uh, he'd, he'd sold his father's paintings uh, to to fund them and had moderate success, uh, but hadn't really proven that he could uh, work in the sound uh, sphere. So he uh, he. His first sound film was this really a little more than an hour long, uh, almost a theatrical, like a comedy theatrical uh, one set play sort of called, uh, uh, let me, 
Unpurge Bebe. Um, I, I knew I was going <laughs> to destroy that. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, La Chienne's a lot easier to pronounce, so there's that. Uh, which is, you know, it's it's. I think it was uh, filmed in about six days, and it's uh, it has Michelle Simone, and it's uh, enjoyable. Uh, a lot about uh, chamber pots and toiletries, uh, but it's more what you'd expect from you know your your small playhouse down the street. Uh, nothing nothing spectacular, but a, a good primer for Renoir, and it did, it did very well, and so that led to his really his watershed work at least what broke him through as a, as a filmmaker, a sound filmmaker was La Chienne. And he again, got to work with uh, Michelle Simone, who is of course a phenomenal actor. If you haven't seen uh, Latalant or Port of Shadows or any of his work with Renoir, highly recommend it. Uh, but La Chienne is, uh, it's a, a bit of a darker film. Uh, and in fact, a lot of these French films could be pretty dark, but uh, it's a, a uh, Simone plays a little against type. He kind of plays a, uh, uh, unassuming, uh, kind of a uh, average, ordinary. Uh, he's a clerk, is what he is, who uh, is a lonely. Uh, he's a painter. Uh, again, maybe drawing on Renoir's uh, personal experience, and he gives away his paintings to a uh, to a lady who I, I guess she, I don't know if it's really implied, but I, she's pretty much a prostitute. So he's basically being taken, and I, I don't want to give away too much because it's it's more of a uh, there is an arc, and uh, and and La Chienne is stands for the bitch. So there's a, there's a reason it probably couldn't be made today because of that. Um, but uh, but it is it's it's more like a noir. Uh, I, I called it post-expressionist because it's it is it does have that darkness, but it's not uh, you know it's not like a Fritz Lang or anything. And uh, but it, it was remade later by Fritz Lang as Scarlet Street with uh, Edward G. Robinson. And so it, the 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 story fit the template of noir very well, uh, and I, I and I actually I'm a big fan of Scarlet Street as well, uh, both good films, and they complement each other. So um, so yeah, I, I liked La Chienne quite a bit. I, I wouldn't put it up with the best of his work, but that's that's a pretty high bar. But I'd say it's definitely second tier Renoir for the '30s, which is I think first tier compared to a lot of the other cinema coming out. Um, anybody else see it? Yes, I watched it. I, I, I dug it quite a bit as well. Uh, I mean, I'll just start by saying the the transfer and the visual, you know, uh, clarity is, is very impressive and really makes me very thirsty for a upgrade of Voodoo Safe from Drowning because mm -hmm. that was a film that I guess, I don't know if it was the exact follow-up to La Chienne, uh, but it also starred Michelle Simone and would really, I think, uh, you know, attract a pretty... Uh, appreciative audience if we got this level of restoration and and quality uh that's a great film but but th yeah this was very intriguing to me just to kind of again see Renoir establishing himself as a you know as as a kind of a fully accomplished force I think there's that uh Studio Canal Jean Renoir box set I I'm I assuming too much to say that you probably have that Aaron the one with the little kind of clapperboard cover there I do have that, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, those are definitely apprentice works, to say the least. If they didn't sure. have Renoir's name on them, you know, they would be mere trivia, mere curiosities. But here you really do have a, a story that I found pretty engaging. I mean, it's it's a, a little bit of a morality tale uh, mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, a simple man who's kind of uh, hoodwinked by... You know, connivers. Uh, you know, he's a he's a sensitive, artistic type, uh, uh, kind of a, a little bit too naive for his own good, 
and uh, he gets taken advantage of. It's, it's funny. I, I I should know better because I I did take a little bit of high school and college French. But when when I first heard the title La Chienne, I thought, oh, that must be some reference to Michel Simon, like he's some kind of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, actually, you know, it was La Chienne in the feminine, uh, uh, yes. you know, uh, conjecture there. So it is. It's it's yeah. There's a there's definitely a little bit of a that sinister uh, twist uh, going on in the story. So I think it is probably prudent to not not get too much into spoilery stuff there uh <laughs> i think it's a very wonderful addition it's it, it kind of reminded me in a, in a strange way of uh, dryer's master of the house that criterion put out a few years ago which is you know probably yeah. b-grade work from a great director but really very valuable to see these formative stages like, a little bit like what we talked about with antonioni as well you know before you get to the masterpiece level it, it is very helpful to sort of see the you know the the threads uh, being woven there as as they build their craft, uh, but this is a very enjoyable uh, uh, package. Uh, you know, I did have not watched the earlier film that you referenced there, Un Purge Bebe, whatever. But uh, good job. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a uh, off the cuff there, but yeah, I I, I I think this is this is a nice addition. I mean, uh, A Day in the Country was a, a pretty. Uh, pleasant revelation for a lot of folks last year uh, including myself and so it's definitely great to see more earlier and getting the the deluxe treatment yeah and maybe Bodu will come next year and i don't i don't want to say how but it actually pairs pretty well with la chienne um and david knows because he's seen it but but yeah this did follow um Bodu followed uh, la chienne and it was actually the last time that they worked together uh, but uh but these three films, uh, and, and Michelle Simone, I think, is one of the all-time greats, and, and he really can play all types of characters. Yeah. and he had a massive career. I mean, he went out way up into the late '60s. The two of us on DVD two of us, was one right. of his, you know, elderly roles, but a pretty, pretty great performance there as well. And uh, also, this there's a lot about the commoditization of art too, which I thought was very interesting. Knowing uh, Renoir's backgrounds, uh, there's a lot of interesting themes that you could. Uh, you could rummage through. I, I do want to just briefly mention the Rivette documentary. Uh, the, it was actually two or three, two, really two TV documentaries, uh, which was really, uh, well, Rivette was a filmmaker, and I, I expected to see, see more Rivette, but there wasn't much. Uh, it was more just him peppering them with questions every now and then. And it was uh, Simone and uh, Renoir, and I think it was right around the time of two of us, uh, you know, mid to late 60s. Uh, in a cafe, and it was really just them goofing off. Uh, there were there were some questions, interviews. It's an hour and a half, so it was a very lengthy uh, supplement. But it was it's kind of refreshing to just see them in their element. Uh, of, they even admit that they're playing for the camera, and they they won't say certain words. But uh, you you could just kind of see the friendship, and and even if they didn't work together a whole lot, they uh, there definitely was a bond and mutual respect. So it was a, a fun one to watch, but not one that's a good one to watch while you're doing chores and that sort of thing. Yeah, just listening to old Renoir talk and that that gregarious uh, you know that you know that joy of life that just comes through in his old age is is splendid. So I haven't mm-hmm. dug into that feature yet, but it's a nice one to have. I mean. He's kind of well known for doing those. I, I think he just, just sort of sat down one day or maybe over a period of days and filmed a bunch of intros to a lot of his films. So a lot of the Criterion releases have him kind of in his, uh, you know, in his golden years, kind of thinking back and telling little stories about the making of different movies. And uh, I, I really enjoy those little tidbits there. So I've, this this looks like it'll be a nice conversation between two old friends. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and and they they do have a good rapport with each other, so it's it's fun to see. So, thank you, Criterion, more Renoir, please. This one played at the Cannes Film Festival, or it was um, shown back in 2014 in the Cannes Classics lineup, um, which was kind of our earliest glimpse at the at the fact that this was getting this had a new restoration. And, you know, it was kind of just a matter of time that Criterion was going to have it uh, on home video. They they did show Boudou Save from Drowning uh, at the Cannes Classics lineup as well, but that was way back in 2010. And so we're still kind of hmm. hopefully, you know, hopefully that will come to Blu-ray soon. I got to say that I really love the artwork for this release. Uh, it's this French illustrator named Blutch, Blutch. And he uh, did the. There's a poster foldout inside for the um, for the the essay on one side, and then there's this giant poster. And his name sounded really familiar, and so I was googling, and I found an interview that the comic book artist Craig Thompson did with him. I guess he's a big fan of his. And when you look at the artwork uh, on that poster in the release, at least like for, the, you know, there are, there are like brush strokes and kind of his style, like drawing the hand and everything. Like you can totally see Craig Thompson, uh, you know, uh, learning from someone like this and, and developing like his brush stroke style. Um, he, he, you know, Craig Thompson did that giant book blankets and Habibi, and he's done a number of other books, but, um, it's, uh, it's fun to see these kind of connections and it's neat that Criterion got him, uh, Blitch to come and, you know, create this piece of art. And, and the cover kind of does fit with the film as well. And, and the, the use of art in the film, which I, I always enjoy. And I, as I, I noticed that actually Bodu Bodu played in 2013 at Wexner. So yeah, fingers crossed. Know. Yeah, looks like 4K. Oh no, I'm sorry, DCP. Well, we'll see what we'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, who knows? All right. So, also released on June 14th uh, this month or last month, spine number 819, Alexander Hall's "Here Comes Mr. Jordan." This was teased at in the Wacky New Year's drawing. We had the uh, image of the man in the bathrobe with the saxophone. And immediately a lot of folks uh, recognized it as being the the character from Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Uh, Arik, you got a chance to watch this uh, for the episode tonight. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I did indeed. So I, I found out uh, after I wrote about this uh, film for my site that uh, this was apparently one of my grandmother's favorite films which uh, I w- am fascinated by. I wish I could ask her. She Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, but I really would love to have been able to talk to her about this film. Um, so here comes Mr. Jordan. It was based on a play that was never actually performed. It was optioned to become a movie before it was performed, but the play was called Heaven Can Wait, which is a name that probably rings a bell to any Criterion completionists out there. Uh, it's a Ernst Lubitsch film that also Criterion also put out, and that's why they didn't call it that because the Ernst Lubitsch film was already in production and so the name had already been taken. Um, it was originally supposed to star Cary Grant instead of Robert Montgomery, and uh, uh, that's reflected by his presence on the uh, on the on the special features in the radio uh, play. But uh, one thing that's sort of interesting about this film is it's been remade like a lot of times. Uh, it was. It was remade. Uh, there was a sequel, first of all, minus Robert Montgomery, starring Rita Hayworth. And that movie, Down to Earth, inspired the film Xanadu, 
It was later remade in the 70s with Warren Beatty as Heaven Can Wait, which I'm sure confuses uh, people who have to shelve things everywhere. And then again in 2001, but called Down to Earth, like the sequel, but with Chris Rock. So it's it's uh, definitely been an, an, an influential film. Um, it's not a masterpiece, I wouldn't say. Um, the it, it, but it is a very very uh, entertaining film. So it's it's about um, it's about this guy uh, uh, named Joe Pendleton who's a, a boxer. Um, he's about to fight for the world championship, and he decides to fly himself in his own one-person plane from wherever he it is he's training to uh, to his home in New York City, and along the way uh, has an accident, crashes, and is taken to the waiting area for presumably heaven. Um, after protesting that he's not really dead, uh, he gets them to, as a courtesy, look up his record, and they determine that, in fact, he's right. He's not really dead. He's not supposed to die until, like, 1991. So... Uh, his guardian angel, who's new on the job, and they don't really go into too much detail on this, but it's implied that he's new because they're expecting a lot of new dead people thanks to World War II, uh, films from 1941. And um, the guardian angel uh, has to fix the, the damage he's caused, but unfortunately, in the time it's taken him to sort this out, his body has already been cremated. And so when he goes back down to Earth, he's forced to inhabit the body of a uh, recently deceased, recently murdered man uh, uh, who's a um, extremely rich, extremely not awesome guy. And um, he he does and meets this uh, woman that he uh, falls for. And, and there's a lot of uh, drama around that. It's... Um, it's like I said. It's not a. It's not a masterpiece. It's. It, it is extremely, extremely fun though. It's. It's funny. Uh, Robert Montgomery does a, a great job. Uh, in what was a pretty much a standout role for him. It was the first time he'd played a, sort of a more working class character, and. Uh, and uh, I thought Claude Rains as the as the sort of um, boss of the angels was was just uh, brilliant as well. But so it's it's. Um, it's a film that I really, really enjoyed watching and, uh, and, and definitely made me think about some things. Uh, the special features are, uh, there, there aren't a lot of them, but they are pretty high quality. Um, there's a like 30 minute conversation between uh, a critic, uh, Michael Sragao and a filmmaker named Michael Schlesinger. And those guys really, really know what they're, what they're talking about. Um, and do a pretty great job of contextualizing a lot of stuff in the film. And in fact, one thing I really like is that they sort of ramble into all sorts of other directions in their conversation it's it's it feels very unscripted which is nice there's a absurdly long voice uh interview with uh robert montgomery's daughter elizabeth montgomery who of course was famously in bewitched it's like an hour and a half of of her just talking about her dad and about this film and about a lot of other things i didn't listen to the whole thing but i did listen to quite a bit of it and it was it was a lot of fun i, I a little hard to get through while sitting in front of the tv so for those of you who have the ability to rip it, it might be nice to like get an audio file to walk around with, but it is, I think, worth it. And finally, I didn't get a chance to to listen to the uh, radio adaptation, the, which I'm actually really excited to do. I just didn't quite have the time. But it does start Cary Grant you know, in the role he was originally supposed to play, so um, I'm, I'm quite excited about that. How's the uh, transfer? Sometimes with these kind of classic Hollywood films, there's a line, you know, some of them look incredible on blu-ray and some of them i feel like are just fine for the dvd edition do you think this really makes the case for blue 
I do. I do indeed. Okay. I think this is definitely one of the ones that, that shines in that way that only old black and white uh, 35 millimeter really can. It's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. There's really no wear and tear. There's, it's, it's quite beautiful. Yeah. And it's a film that, um, is, uh, surprisingly well shot, I would say. And so there's actually quite a, a lot of pretty great scenes, uh, from a visual perspective. So yeah, I definitely think it, it, it makes the case for blue. Cool. Cool. Yeah, there's some special effects too that uh, that I think really shine in the, in the Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, I, I think the transfer looked amazing. Yeah, I think the heaven scenes where they're kind of walking across this vast mm-hmm. uh, cloudy plain, and that's a pretty pretty cool effect. I mean, what I was really struck with with this film was kind of the combination of kind of some provocative metaphysical ideas. I mean, you know, nothing you know deeply complex or philosophically nuanced but you know just some notions about the afterlife and about you know kind of these different dimensions of reality that you don't always see in these films and 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 you know of course mixed with it was kind of snappy you know vintage 1940s wise guy patter and and uh you know there's a certain corny humor to it but but it, it is like like rx says it's, there's just a lot of fun just to kind of see this kind of weird assembly of of ideas and characterizations uh you know there's a there's a certain datedness to it but that's actually part of the charm so uh yeah this is a this is kind of just an entertaining fairly lightweight release but there's a lot of accessibility to it uh, whether it's nostalgia you know for folks who maybe have seen this film on tv or you know known it for a number of years or just kind of a you know, a, a, you know, a blast from the past that, that maybe you haven't really encountered before, but it's just kind of a fun thing to experience, uh, you know, a little kind of supernatural metaphysical comedy of the 1940s. I mean, you don't see those things every day. I mean, kind yeah, of there's definitely... Well, I was sorry. just going to say that it was kind of like, maybe felt a little bit like um, I Married a Witch a little bit. Like, you know, you can yeah. watch it as a, a, a double feature with that. <laughs> yeah, that's another one that, you know, not a masterpiece, but very, very entertaining. There is, I think this one has a little more to offer in terms of thoughtfulness than I Married a Witch. Um, some of the stuff David was alluding to, and there's also quite a lot in here about uh, sort of the nature of destiny and whether or not fate is predetermined. There was actually apparently more of that in the original screenplay that was taken out because the studio was a little nervous about it. But it, it does make some, some sort of interesting-ish uh, claims about, you know, sort of the nature of 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 one's uh, existence and and whether or not uh, we're going to end up where we're going to end up regardless of whatever happens um i married a witch is also great and fun though so yeah that it would it would make a really fun double feature also if you uh, are into quantum leap this kind of feels like a, an episode of that <laughs> Abs- absolutely yeah <laughs> it does I, I do like quantum leap a lot it's an interesting contrast with last year's Ride the Pink Horse, with which uh, was directed and starred uh, uh, Montgomery, uh, because the the performance is drastically different from this one. And so if you want to see his range, he was quite an actor. Uh, yeah, you d- definitely see it here. I, I don't think I've seen a role like this that he played. Also, apparently quite an interesting father, if you want to listen to the, the interview with his daughter. <laughs> she definitely has a lot of very funny stories about him. I didn't get through it either, but uh, maybe maybe I'll rip it. <laughs> did anyone listen to the theater? Did David? Did you listen to the the radio one? I have not gotten to that one yet. Sorry. Uh, we got to get in there. I did watch the conversation between the critic and the filmmaker, and 
Uh, I enjoyed it a lot too. I thought they had a lot to offer as far as talking about it. But there's like a moment right at the beginning between them where like they both, one of them looked like so grumpy that I thought like this conversation was going to go a totally different direction. <laughs> but then as soon as they, as soon as they started talking, they just both opened up and started gushing about, you know, everything that they knew about this movie and all of the actors and, you know, all of the context. It was, it was actually a pretty great interview, I thought. It was really impressive. They knew us. So, I mean, I'm sure they, you know, put it into their heads before, but they, I mean, 32 minutes of talking extemporaneously about something like this is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And they had every name and every, you know, it's very good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on now to the next release. This was released on June 21st, a new animated film in the Criterion Collection, Rene Lalou's Fantastic Planet, uh, also known as La Planète Sauvage, uh, kind of the, the wild planet or the... Um, so this is um, a film that has been released uh, on DVD and Blu-ray before through Masters of Cinema in the, in the UK. This is one that I've owned uh, in multiple editions across different formats, but uh, I was very happy to see Criterion uh, release this one again. This story uh, is far in the future or you know what we assume is the future the human race has been enslaved by these aliens known as the uh, drags uh, humans are called ohms which is kind of a play on the french word for human or for man uh, and what we meet a so the movie kind of starts off in this amazing sequence where we are watching this woman and a baby being kind of uh, attacked or tortured by these large larger blue aliens the larger blue aliens turn out to just be kids and they're just playing with a a human the way that that little you know little kids would torment a insect or you know a small animal and um the baby is given to a uh, a child to to keep for her own as a pet and he goes on to grow up and become educated and uh, eventually leads a revolution of sorts uh, on this planet where uh, humans are just uh, an infestation and are treated you know uh, you know the way that we would treat uh, animals here on earth so it's uh but it's all done uh, in this kind of you know not uh, stop motion but like paper cut style animation it's very kind of stilted in the way that it's uh, done but it was so Rene Lalou directed it, but it was uh, done in conjunction with um, uh, Topor. What's his name? I from Roland Topor. Roland Topor, um, and they had met earlier when uh, Lalou had uh, years before he made this movie. Uh, he was working in a uh, in a health institute or a medical institute. Um, some people kind of referred to it as like an asylum, but it was you know this kind of radical. Uh, mental or you know medical uh institution where people were allowed to kind of like you know they used art as a as a way of kind of helping the patients there and that led to him kind of working on smaller animated films with some of the patients and eventually he met Topor uh as a result of winning an award in France and then they would go on to create a couple of other short films which are included in this Criterion Collection release uh The Snails and um dead time i think and uh and you and they include both of those on this release which i think was uh pretty smart the masters of cinema disc has a few other shorts but i don't think that they necessarily uh i mean i can see why criterion decided to take you know to not include them on this release um the film itself is 
I think a masterpiece and I love going back and rewatching it. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's not necessarily like a kid's movie, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with showing this to younger kids. And as far as like getting them interested in, you know, seeing uh, animated films from other countries and kind of broadening their horizons. I mean, there's like, you know, violence and nudity and, um, you know, kind of darker themes with like slavery and, um, you know, genocide. Uh, but it's, I think, you know, it, it kind of feels a lot like something, you know, like Planet of the Apes or those like 60s, 70s sci-fi films that were trying to tease out larger social issues. And uh, I love it. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun to go back and revisit it. Um, the soundtrack is amazing. It's got this, um, the, the, the music was done by, um, what is his name here? I, uh, Alain Gorajur. And, uh, I was just listening to the soundtrack earlier and it's fantastic. Uh, if anyone listens to Sam Smith's, uh, OST radio show that he does, uh, every week now, he just recently, I think on one of the most recent episodes played a, one of the longer tracks, uh, from fantastic planet on it, which kind of, um, got me back into wanting to, you know, pull out the record and start listening to this, uh, myself. Um, but Aaron, I know you got a chance to watch this also, and you enjoyed it a lot. So I, I'm curious to hear uh, what you thought of it. You know, I love these discoveries, and and this is actually saying something for this month. But this is my favorite film of the month. I just love this film so much, and it's. I mean, the animation is great. Uh, I, I think Roland Topor is a crazy genius. <laughs> uh, I think very few people could really transpose these ideas into uh, in, into a project like this. And it's so dense too. It touches on so many uh, deep themes. Uh, there's anti-Semitism. There's uh, uh, Holocaust. Uh, there's a lot of not pretty grim themes. But um, and then the, and like you said, the, the music is just phenomenal. I think I I had that uh, Spotify playing for like two weeks after I saw this. And uh, yeah, I, I just I just love this. And uh, and thank you Criterion for for not just bringing out animation but something like this is really unique uh, I, I don't i've never seen anything like this so one thing i have to uh, so it, you know it's got a great um interviews with um with topor from 1973 there's um michael brook who is who does a lot of work with arrow and bfi and he's very active on the criterion forum so people probably recognize uh michael b's name um he wrote the essay for this release which is a fantastic essay i mean he is just you know he's a genius and it's fun to read longer pieces of work of his uh in stuff like this um, the essay in the masters of cinema booklet is also great that keg Craig Keller wrote uh, a few years ago. And so I would say like own, you know, pick up both of them. The, the master of cinema disc will give you a few extra supplements um, versus what the criterion one does. But um, I think this, this new one is fantastic. I mean, my only complaint about the release itself is just that how much I, I really hate the fold out insert uh, book po essays. Um, this one in particular is just really obnoxious to read because of the way that it's formatted on the back of that poster. And, you know, in the shape of one of the drugs heads. Yeah. There. It's like getting kind of cute with the typography there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like it was uh, it was obnoxious to the point where I just decided, oh, well, I'm just going to read this on my phone or I'm just going to read this on my computer or I'll just print out the essay from the website because I don't want to read it the way that it's, you know, holding up this giant poster, um, 
Whereas like the Masters of Cinema, what the booklet that you get with that is just, it's a nice thick booklet with images and artwork and, you know, the essay plus uh, an interview plus other resources. I mean, it's just like night and day difference. Um, and I know Criterion has, you know, reasons for cutting costs and moving to this new format, but this one just felt like such a, like a waste of time. Like I don't even want to, I'm probably never going to open that up to read the essay on it. Yeah. The, uh, the Michael's essay wasn't online when I, when I got the disc. So I, I didn't read it. I just, uh, just moved on. It was just, uh, unreadable. Um, I do want to give uh, some dap to Eric Skillman for the cover too. Uh, very nice work, Eric. Yeah, it looks great. I mean, that there's so many images of the drags, or like so many iconic images of like posters that have been used, but this is a little bit different. And so it's, you know, it feels a little fresh. Mm-hmm. It might be my favorite cover of the month, actually. So it's a great cover. Yeah. Yeah. But, he, but he's basically doing art in the imitation. I mean, this is not like a still or a screen cap or anything. This is, this is a unique work of art that's done that's... after the style of the artist, right? I, That's what I, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, it seems yeah. like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, let me tell you, my, my first encounter with this film was probably back in its original U.S. theatrical run, like when it was in the drive-in theaters. I was like probably 11 or 12 years old, whatever the year that was, and it just kind of blew my mind. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was one of those impressions, like, what's going on here, and why does this animated movie not look like something that disney put out or hanna barbera or whatever you know it's like just the the textures and the colors and and of course the the very provocative ideas i mean you know ryan you talked about some of the you know the darker themes that this film touches on and yet there's a real truly there's like an innocence and i mean it is a almost an ideal way of of introducing uh kind of a pre-adolescent child into some of these heavier aspects of life in a story that they can maybe identify with certain, you know, characters with 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 the young the ohm, you know, the young humanoid uh, you know, uh, child who's been kind of brought into this world against his will and and kind of enslaved and and kind of made an object, and he's got to find his way through. I mean, you know, there there are some deep things that go on in this movie, but. Uh, you, you know, as a parent or as a, as anybody with an influence over the life of the child, this is actually a responsibility we have is to prepare them for the reality of what they're growing up into. So I, I feel like this film has sort of a role in that respect. And it is. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable work of art. This, this is definitely one of those films where you could almost do a freeze frame and there's a, a print-worthy image <laughs> almost at random uh, mm-hmm. to be found uh, almost, you know, from the beginning to the end of this disc. Yeah, when I was a kid, I think for me, um, you know, this is definitely not as good as Fantastic Planet, but the heavy metal movie. Um, which well, was, yeah, this w- really set the stage for all that. Definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, later on, Rene Lalou would go on to work with Mobius on uh, on Time Masters, and then he went to work with um, another artist on Gandahar. Um, but, you know, all of that stuff, all these like European artists kind of led to, you know, the, you know, Ralph Bakshi stuff that we would see in, in the U.S. and, you know, um, the heavy metal movie, the kind of anthology movie, plus, you know, the magazines that that were put out here in the States. Um, hey, Ryan, yeah. do you have any comments on the colorizing? I mean, I guess one, yeah. of, the, one of the big issues is like these these aliens, uh, the the drugs are are very blue in this one. I, I mean, I think it looks beautiful, and I don't have a real, I don't have any earlier versions of this on home media, so I just have that 
kind of early childhood impression, and then I've got this. So big gap between uh, stages of life. But what's your thought on the the coloring or, or other features of the transfer here? Uh, I'm a fan of the way that this looks. Now, um, I, I know when it was first reviewed, I forget if it was the, the DVD Beaver review or if it was the Blu-ray.com review, but you know, people were like quick to look at the, maybe it was the Blu-ray.com review and they were saying that it looked more blue than the other one did. Um, but I, I really have a hard time. Like, I mean, I'm not sitting there with both discs playing them back and forth. And so, uh, I don't have any problem with it. Um, I don't think that Criterion made any mistake with, with the way that it's colorized and it, you know, they worked in conjunction with Argos films, uh, to, to show this new presentation of the film. So, um, I think it's fine. Good to know. Yeah, look great. I think there's a tendency to just grab a couple of screenshots and uh, and look at them a little too closely. Whereas if you just watch the film, it, you never would notice it. Uh, so maybe they're a little bit more blue, but I thought they had more dimension compared to the images I saw. So I, I thought it actually could have been an improvement. But yeah, uh, there is a. English track for any out there who doesn't want to watch the movie in French. Um, and I think the English track is, is interesting. Um, this movie was, uh, I think that the U S tour that you saw David when you were a kid was, uh, Roger Corman was, uh, kind of helped get that over here to the States. Yeah. I had no awareness of that. It was an opening feature for some, maybe like the man with the golden gun, like a James Bond movie. That's the, I don't, I may be off there, but I think they were maybe showing together. That's kind of my recollection. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. A little memory there. A little flashback. Hmm. Flashback. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it will be interesting now to see what criterion does as far as bringing more animation into the collection. Um, you know, they have now Watership Down and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, th- there are so many other, and they've and Criterion has talked about this in various places and talks where they said, you know, like it, they would love to do various animated films, but they don't, they can't get the rights to them. They, you know, they can't do the Studio Ghibli movies because Disney has them, or they can't, you know, they can't re-release Akira because Funimation has the rights to that now. Um, you know, as much as they would want to go into some of those other areas, uh, it's just, they have to, you know, get what's available to them. I think there are still some titles out there that are probably worth, um, looking into from Criterion. There's this Russian animated, uh, director, uh, Yuri Nornstein, who did uh, tale of tales, this, this 1979 film that's kind of like a short, but he does, he did a number of other pieces of work that are worth looking into. That was kind of one that I have in the back of my mind is maybe coming to Criterion just because, you know, Image did that Masters of Russian animation series on DVD years and years ago, which are now out of print. And so it'd be fun if they were able to get uh, the rights to some of that stuff and release maybe uh, in, you know, an upgraded box set of that. I mean, there are also other uh, distributors like G Kids who put out um, you know, foreign animated films and they're essentially like, you know, the criterion collection of, of, you know, world, you know, international animated, uh, works. I'm, I'm hoping for, uh, Bakshi's American pop personally. Oh yeah. Yeah. And maybe some older Czech animation, especially since they, that kind of led to this, uh, they had Czech animators working on this. Uh, definitely. 
Uh, there's also a French animator named Michel Ocelot, and he d- has done films like, um, what is it? Let me pull up his thing here. Like Kiraku, the Kiraku films, like Kiraku and the Sorceress. And um, I, I don't know if, if G Kids has the rights to that, but I mean, those, w- I would love to see those on Blu-ray here in the States. I think there's maybe a couple of Blu-rays in France, but uh, he is just an amazing uh, animator and so I'd love to see those here as well like Azur and Asmar um, The Prince's Quest so anyway uh, very happy with this release of Fantastic Planet and uh, you know as far as whether or not Criterion should release the other two films uh, Gandahar and Time Masters um, I don't know if they necessarily need to but I would love to see someone like if Masters of Cinema decided to upgrade those to Blu-ray uh, those DVDs could sure use an upgrade but you know, I don't know if they would necessarily fit in with the Criterion Collection the way that Fantastic Planet kind of does in its um, importance in, you know, in film history. All right, so let's move on to the next title of the month. Let's go to Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Spine number 821, Once Upon a Time, a Laserdisc release now has rejoined the collection. David... Why don't you talk a little bit about this movie? Uh, yeah, this is a modest little <laughs> number that kind of <laughs> slides in there, unobtrusive all. But, no, it's it's Stanley Kubrick comes to Criterion once again. And and this is definitely a, an event release. I mean, you know, there's been a really earlier Kubrick on Criterion in recent years, Paths of Glory, The Killing, uh, of course, Spartacus going way back there. But this one, you know, even though it's all in our hands now and we've kind of grown accustomed to it, I think this is still a bit of a shocker when Criterion released the announcement that, yes, we are going to have our own edition of Dr. Strangelove, which is just considered one of those kind of, you know, titanic, unassailable Warner Brothers properties that they're just never going to give up because... I mean, it's Doctor Strangelove. You know, I mean, this is this is a big deal type of movie. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, you know, Criterion uh, obviously did the negotiations. They they uh, you know they they made a pitch that made sense to the studio to say, okay, let's go ahead and give Criterion a shot at it. And uh, in doing so, of course, they have an obligation to say to all those people who love Stanley Kubrick and have. Uh, you know, compiled a nice little collection of his stuff, whether that's through one of these deluxe box sets or through individual releases over the years. Uh, here's a, yet another reason to get a new version of uh, Dr. Strangelove on disc to take home. And, of course, there's always younger viewers coming up who have heard about Kubrick and, and uh, maybe haven't added this to their collection. But this is this is a pretty definitive, wonderful uh, edition. I mean... Probably as a package, as a product, this is you know, easily my favorite release of the month, and I'm very happy to chat about it once again. So, uh, you know, they they brought up some some uh, you know they they kind of brought their A game, I guess I'll say the Criterion kind of gave us one of those classic old timey packages, you know, a nice slipcase, digipack. Uh, they don't just put a little booklet in there. They they put a nice little envelope. It's kind of one of those, kind of a throwback to me, at least back to the glory days of the 1970s gatefold album releases where you not only have a big, you know, 12-inch vinyl LP, fold-out cover, but then they've got some goodies inside, you know, posters and stickers and, 
and uh, you know pop-ups and all kinds of little whatnot. So here you've got the slipcase, you've got the little top secret portfolio. You open it up, you get kind of a little replica of a kind of a Playboy <laughs> magazine. Uh, you get a nice little uh, you know uh, just just a nice little you know, collection of of, of uh, printed goods that all have their nice little thematic tie-ins, including what must be the tiniest production credits, acknowledgements, and thank you statements that <laughs> Criterion or any other home media company has ever released. This tiny little booklet. You almost might forget it in the bottom of the envelope. It's uh, the Holy Bible and Russian phrases, as well as a few other little <laughs> tidbits of information all included in there. So, so you get a pretty nice, fun little thing to take home with you and open up and enjoy, and I'm sure... Most people listening to this podcast have probably, if they don't have it themselves already, have seen uh, you know, little spreads that people have put out on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. So you got a nice, you got a nice deluxe package. I mean, Criterion definitely didn't, you know, uh, hold anything back in that regard. But there are a lot of nice features. There, there are some good things that you don't get on any of the previous releases in terms of some supplements, uh, just different interviews, different perspectives on the film. Uh, they've got a pretty nice stable of, of critics and scholars and researchers, all of whom who bring, you know, a, a different perspective. I, I, I There was one in particular kind of deep down in the menu that talked about um, Kubrick's connection to sort of classic mythology and, and, and kind of putting the characterizations and the plot developments and, and just kind of the whole narrative of Dr. Strangelove in this kind of grand poetic mythological scheme which actually was kind of a unique take on the film uh, you know the movie itself is is probably pretty familiar territory to a lot of viewers uh, but it is a a kind of a masterpiece of cold war paranoia of of uh kind of end of the world uh apocalyptic uh, situation but done in this kind of dark satirical uh, kind of boisterous, and I can't believe they went there. Uh, you know, attitude, uh, especially if you consider it for the times. And again, if you just want to watch some films from the early '60s, just for comparison and contrast, uh, there was not really anybody quite you know, making movies with the kind of uh, yeah, just just that that kind of cynical edge that that Kubrick had. Certainly nobody with major studio backing uh, from Hollywood. So, yeah, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a, is a classic. It's, it's hilarious still. I mean, I've seen this movie, I'm sure, probably a dozen times over the course of my life. But just watching it again over the past few days, getting ready for this podcast, just, just continuing to laugh at just the, the razor-edged humor uh, and the, you know, laughing in the face of <laughs> unimaginable cataclysm and, and horror and just, you know, uh, putting, putting ourselves into this, you know, dreadful worst case scenario, you know, what would you do? And, and, uh, yeah, just, just so many aspects of this film that I really love, appreciate, and uh, continue to marvel at, uh, despite my you know ongoing familiarity with it all. I have to admit that I hesitated greatly in picking this movie up, uh, in part because I usually loathe to upgrade many things. I figure if I have the movie in one form, that's as good as any other. But totally understandable, yeah. Yeah, but ultimately, you know, seeing the packaging photos and stuff, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll just pick it up for the podcast at least. And <laughs> if I, I really, uh, you know, if it's not a 
totally up to par, uh, then I can always sell it back somewhere. And the other thing is I'm not like the biggest fan of uh, Sony's transfers that they ported over to Criterion so far. But uh, I, I popped this thing in last night and the transfer is amazing and the film is funnier than I remembered, which seems impossible. Uh, but yeah, this is a really outstanding release. I've only just started to go through the supplements. Uh, I'm a little concerned that they'll just kind of retread the same territory there, so we'll see. Well, I, I watched that. a bunch of them in sequence. I, I, I mean, I just basically just plowed through, so I don't have real yeah. detailed notes on this one was great, this one was so-so. If you do have, like, I have the uh, Stanley Kubrick limited edition collection, which is not the most recent, but the one before <laughs> most recent <Okay>. Warner <laughs> Brothers mega package, you know, and... Um, I didn't. I didn't actually see a ton of difference between uh, that Blu-ray and this new one, um, but it does have pretty much all of the features, all of the supplements that are on that disc, but a whole lot more. I mean, there's definitely enough here that if you really want to get the full perspective on this film, um, the Criterion Edition I think surpasses anything else that's available, just because they they give you the history, they give you the archival stuff. But they really do um, bring some some new perspectives from a lot of different angles. Uh, you know, Kubrick's career, uh, some of the production, some of the technical stuff. I mean, it's definitely very fascinating. I mean, I'm probably got a little bit of a, a reputation, or people know about my recent uh, you know uh, vocal uh, commentary track I did for 2001: The Space Odyssey. <laughs> so, with that film very fresh in my mind. Coming back to Doctor Strangelove, which was you know Kubrick's uh, predecessor to 2001, there's actually some pretty interesting linkages between Doctor Strangelove and 2001 in Kubrick's you know very obsessive focus on you know technical precision, the procedural aspects of getting. Uh, whether it's a, a B-52 bomber or a you know futuristic spacecraft uh, flying on its way to Jupiter, how do you get this object doing what it's supposed to do? And and the the very deliberate uh, depiction of all the steps that you've got to do with which buttons to push and which sequence uh, that that goes in. I mean, there's you know you you can sort of see Kubrick's uh, famous uh, you know chess master's mind at work here. Uh, and so, you know, just just admiring him as a incredibly proficient, deep researcher and, and master of whatever material he applies himself to. There's a lot of there's a lot of supporting evidence for that. Uh, but and then there's the performances of, of uh, Peter Sellers, of course, in the famous three roles, uh, the president, uh, the, the British, uh, you know, uh, kind of military aide, and then of course uh, Doctor Strangelove himself. George C. Scott is just completely off the chain. <laughs> He's just <laughs> just unbelievably on point with with all of his facial expressions and body language and vocal delivery. And then Sterling Hayden as uh, General Jack D. Ripper, uh, and 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 Slim Pickens as the as the pilot. I mean, just impeccably right on the spot performances uh that just just capture this um this moment in time but also um how a system can just kind of completely get unhinged and and lead to annihilation but they're only following the rules after all it's it's just quite a quite a marvelous thing to behold and and i i think it's a movie that that does continues to hold up while it's depicting a certain era, it it continues to speak to our own days, uh, in with all of our current 
you know, rages and, and fears and anxieties about, you know, terrorism and, and just you know, all kinds of menaces and dangers that we face in uh, this modern world. It is, uh, you know, owning this movie again and again, having excuses to rewatch it, you know, you find new lines that you maybe forgot about that are just so funny. Like you really watching this movie more than once just rewards uh, every single time, I think. And this movie is certainly like, you know, right before 2001, like this one, this is the first time where he was a director, producer and writer for the movie. And this kind of leads to a whole era of the like the big Kubrick movies that we that everyone knows and loves, like, you know, Strange Love, 2001, Clockwork Orange, like the stuff before this. They were, they all, you know, you can see Kubrick there in, you know, in Fear and Desire. You can see his stuff in The Killer's Kiss and The Killing and Passive Glory and Spartacus and Lolita. But like th- these next, you know, this next run of movies all the way up to Eyes Wide Shut, you just you see his his the, the ability for him to control the movie into what he really wanted it to be is uh, it's just he takes it to a whole other level. Yeah, totally agree. I just got to point out that I just every time I watch this movie, the names uh, of all the characters just they are yeah. just, just perfect and hilarious in in and of themselves. Uh, you know, uh, just even like you know Mandrake and Merkin and Muffley and Strangelove and Turgidson and Bat Guano and King Kong and like all these characters, Lothar Zog, like James Earl Jones is Lothar Zog. Like that's just such a funny name. Um, yeah. 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 And, you know, we talked about the Manchurian candidate a couple months ago, uh, early this year. I, I, these are these are two films that really, uh, if you're a connoisseur of vintage early 60s Cold War paranoia, it gets no better than this, you know. The uh, it's it, it was fun to see that Criterion made a little mistake on their cover when it was first announced. They put the wrong plane on it. Uh, there's a nice... Um, oh, I did not realize. What's the story behind that? So when they first put the cover up, they used the wrong uh, plane on the cover that wasn't the the, the plane the that B-52. was in the, the B-52. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's actually a post that, that Eric Skillman wrote up, uh, a Criterion Designs post for the site, and I'll include a link in the show notes for it. But um, he actually talks about how uh, they... They didn't even realize it until they put the put the cover up, and then all the fans started pointing out to them that they had used the wrong plane, that he used a KC-135 tanker and not the B-52 bomber. And uh, he says that it was like people were saying like that they had made a cover for Back to the Future but used a Ferrari instead of a DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> I am shocked, wow. shocked yeah. that Kubrick fans would notice this error. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, David's right. They they really put together an amazing package for something like uh, you know, and like you said, you know, why why would you know you need to give these fans a reason to go out and buy this? Well, you know, put together an amazing package, and people will go buy this movie again. So does kind of you know provoke the question? Do you think there's more? Would we get two thousand one? Would we get Clockwork Orange? Barry Lyndon, of course, I think has been the one that actually seems maybe more likely to a lot of people because it's not quite the you know you know printable money that that those other two films are in terms of the fan base but would warners ever really say yeah let's let's go ahead and give criterion a shot at 
one of their tent poles there. So I hope and pray that they'll do Barry Lyndon. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Strangelove was actually Sony that licensed it to Criterion with Columbia. Um, And they, you know, made a deal with Warner Brothers to include Strangelove in that box set. And so they have um, a number of other films uh, that they own the rights to. Um, And I think even the... I think maybe it's Dr. Strangelove that wasn't included in some Kubrick box sets elsewhere in the world. I think that most recent one with the kind of 70s neon psychedelic lettering, that's the one that does not have Strangelove in it. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, Barry Lyndon, I think, has to be, like, you know, up there as far as, like, films that deserve a better edition than what uh, Warner Brothers put out. I mean, alongside Lolita, they just kind of, they release these... um, versions on blu-ray that i don't even think there was a big uh you know hullabaloo around the uh the aspect ratio that they ended up putting them out on that's that's right it was for barry yeah the aspect ratio is wrong on barry linden there's no special features and uh it's uh kubrick's best film so uh get on it that's all i have to say (laughs) so yeah hopefully they you know and you know warner brothers and criterion have been working pretty well over the past couple of years so i think that it's got to be uh, certainly in discussion between them. Well, yeah, I'm very excited. This is this actually is going to be for anyone in the who collects the Criterion UK releases. You'll be able to get Doctor Strangelove uh, later this month uh, in the UK. All right, so we're down to the last title of the month: Olivier Assayas's Clouds of Sils Maria. This was his 2014 film starring. Um, Kristen Stewart and Juliette Binoche and Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, this played at the Cannes Film Festival the year that it uh, was released, and it you know kind of divided uh, audiences. I think Not, there there are people out there that certainly champion this film, and then there are others who you know think that this isn't really great essays. But I I love it. I thought the the, the performances from Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart in particular, I think, really goes out of her way to put out a like incredible performance in this movie and you you hear her uh enthusiasm for working in this on this film in in the the interview supplement on the on the disc itself i mean a lot of people probably have their own opinions about her as an actress and you know the films that she's chosen to be in but i think she's trying to really fight against the 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 idea of being like pigeonholed into any kind of role in particular and i mean she's had a pretty um tough time dealing with you know paparazzi and um and just you know online uh images of her and you know her her own fan base based on the twilight movies and um so to have her now as a part of the criterion collection in this movie um by one of the you know my favorite directors olivia sayas has done just so many uh amazing films over the years and we only have a handful now in the collection with carlos and summer hours um, but yeah, I, this movie is about uh, an older actress played by Juliette Binoche, who the role was kind of written for her by Assayas, um, kind of in a meta way, in the way that the 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 actress in the movie is uh, has you know kind of been working with the, or you know worked with this uh, playwright who and filmmaker who she worked with when she was just getting started, and is now going back to celebrate him, but he uh, unexpectedly dies. And, um, she goes to live, uh, at his house while she's preparing for, uh, a play based on the story that she was kind of made famous for when she was younger. And, 
she's there with her assistant who's played by Kristen Stewart and they're um you know walking around these beautiful mountains uh in Switzerland uh going through the play but also kind of um you know dealing with their own emotional issues uh between each other and you know kind of the the tension um and you know kind of love between the two of them and then there's this third character who's going to play the role that Julia Pinoche played when she was younger, who is now going to be played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who, you know, people might remember when she was the little girl in, in Kick-Ass, and she's been in a number of other films, but she comes in as this kind of crass American, you know, uh, actress that is kind of, uh, you know, a stereotype of what a lot of folks probably imagine American actresses to be. But I think she does has a fun role in it and is, is a little bit deeper than, you know, maybe she lets on or some people might think of. Um, yeah, this the the scenes in the mountains in Switzerland are just so beautiful. And um, there's also some really like uh, tense scenes between like as you know, when when Kristen Stewart is driving through the mountains and is kind of there's like, you know, loud music playing and there's and she gets out and is kind of having almost like a panic attack that that uh moments like that in films when you can use music to kind of, you know, evoke emotions from the audience, like in the way that this, that scene does, um, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, punch drunk love or something like that, like that, it really, uh, it really felt powerful to me. So I, I really enjoyed watching it. I hadn't seen it, uh, until now, uh, now that Criterion was releasing it. And there was some worry that maybe they weren't going to release it because I think Paramount ended up uh, they they've worked out some kind of deal with IFC where they're now kind of releasing some of the IFC films um, to a wider home video audience, maybe something that Criterion can't reach. Um, and they did that with Boyhood and uh, and now Clouds of Sales Maria. But, you know, luckily Criterion got their hands on this and um, there's some there's some fun supplements on here. There's a nice interview with Olivia Sayas talking about you know, his, his role in, you know, his relationship with Julia Binoche and, um, why he came to, you know, want to work on this movie. Also the connections between, you know, Fassbinder and, um, he talks about, uh, Persona, the Bergman film and, you know, their influence on, uh, a movie like this. Um, this, this, the disc also includes this, um, silent, short documentary from 1924 which is shown in the movie but essentially was what kind of inspired the location uh the the cloud phenomenon phenomena of maloya which are like the the clouds of sils maria the clouds that are coming through the mountains kind of like snaking their way through the the little nooks and crannies of the mountains um aaron i know you you had also watched this and um why don't you tell me a little bit of what you thought? Well, I, I saw it uh, in the theaters first, and then I rewatched it again, and, and I, I loved it in the theaters. Uh, and I, I rewatched it on the Criterion. Actually, I, I liked it just a slight, slightly a bit less this time. Um, maybe I think once you kind of get the, well, I, I think the the superhero and the, the commentary on modern film and paparazzi was neat the first time around. But it, it's maybe a little obvious the second time. Yeah, I could have totally done without that whole side side plot, that whole subplot of her, uh, you know, seeing the whole when they show some of the movie right. that they're watching. Like I, they could have cut all that out and I would have been fine with it. 
but the scenes with Stuart and Binoche, especially when they're acting out the play, uh, are just magical. And, and and I really liked the supplement to the interview with uh, the two talking about their, um, and it's to get what they kind of, uh, they show Stuart and then they show Binoche. They're talking about their styles. And uh, Juliet Binoche is the consummate professional. She comes in, she prepares, uh, she we know Binoche, she's one of the greats. In fact, I just saw her in another film tonight, and she was fantastic. Whereas Stewart is, you know, this younger, uh, as you noted, trying to find her way and, and choose some better roles. She's going to be in, well, she's in Personal Shopper that'll come out soon. Um, but she didn't, she doesn't prepare, and she didn't like to rehearse. And she, uh, and in fact, some, some things she missed reading in the script. So you... When I when I first saw that, I thought, "Wow, you know, she's a little lazy by comparison." But actually, I think it worked in the performance because the reactions you got from Benoche's performances were were actually genuine, and I think that's where where her her performance really shined. So yeah, I, I could have watched the whole movie with the, just them two on the uh, the mountaintop um, watching the clouds, and I'd been been fine with it. The cover art was done by um, Nassim Higson. And it was delayed when they made the announcements that of that this was getting a Criterion release. There was no cover available, and so it wasn't until like a month or two later that we got um, the final design up. I don't think I'm that crazy about the poster art. I mean, like I w- I've gone back and forth, um, and I just I don't know if it necessarily fits the themes of the movie as much as I think that maybe some of the other posters do, or or images from the movie that could have done, but. Um, I mean, I I don't like hate it or anything, but I just think that, you know, they could have done something maybe even more simpler. I just the the faces in the mountains don't really do it for me. A little crowded. Yeah. There. What if they had just inside? There's a, you know, little fold out booklet thing where it's just kind of a kind of muted, cloudy background with oh, a, yeah. I mean, trees. That might have been a better cover, you think? I, oh, I think so, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. even when you pop in the, the disc and you're looking at the menu and it's just the mountains, I mean, I could have just done with the mountains and the text, and that would have been fine with me. But, I mean, you I, know, I mean, it is a modern movie of, yeah, of yeah. recent and I, years, <laughs> and so you got to get the stars' faces. I mean, there's probably some mm-hmm. contractual language. You do exactly, have star yeah. credits above the title, and I mean, that's not there by accident, you know? <laughs> no, you're you're totally right. I mean, that we've we've read about how Criterion has, you know, there are very specific rules when you make a cover, like what needs to be on there, how big, you know, the names need to be, how big the faces need to be, and uh, all of that stuff is written into it. So, I mean, it's not as easy as saying, like, oh, they should have just done this with the cover um has anyone else had a chance to watch this movie uh before we start wrapping things up for tonight like scott or Arik? have either of you guys seen clouds of sales maria i saw it back when it came out last spring or whatever and i think a lot of the stuff you guys mentioned about like kind of the paparazzi and kind of the snide remarks about contemporary cinema kind of brought the movie down for me not that i don't agree with their points i just think it's kind of obvious points to make and the face of, uh, like Garen said, kind of more complex and interesting uh, relationship between the two main characters. I'd be interested to rewatch it again, though, because it's the only Asayas film that I haven't really been able to get completely on board with. But uh, yeah, I wasn't wasn't too big a fan the first time around. Maybe, maybe 10 years from now, all these pop culture references will have a nostalgic sweet spot for us or something. <laughs> yeah. When superhero films are gone and the paparazzi is uh, no more. <laughs> I hope that they. I hope that Criterion continues to work with uh, Asayas and getting some of his films into the collection. I mean, they. It seems like they've passed on 
his 2012 film, Something in the Air. But uh, I would like to see them go back and maybe reconsider putting that in the collection. I, you know, in I wasn't when I saw it, I didn't think like, oh, this is as amazing as something like Carlos or, you know, as, as expansive as that. But going thinking back now, I, I have like a fond memory of it. And I wish now that it had a, a Blu-ray release from Criterion. I love something in the air. So I will second that yeah. all the way. I'm, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan, but I, I enjoy it. I, I would like a, a release. Um, but the one I'd really like is Irma Vep. Yeah. Going back a ways. I didn't get a chance to watch this one yet, but I was really curious about the silent documentary that was included. You spoke about it, but you didn't say if it was any good. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, footage of these mountains with uh, music. Uh, it's like a jazz uh, score that they that was recorded later. Um, and, mm. you know, it's like a pretty rough uh, bit of footage. I mean, there's lots of scratches and um, and lines in it. It's not, you know, I think the original negative had been lost and this is just like a print that was going around and it had been shown uh, in various places. And so it's, you know, but I think it's kind of hypnotizing to watch these Mm -hmm. clouds move through these mountains. And, um, I think it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the science's fiction, uh, disc. Yeah. And so I'm kind of thinking maybe it's on the same, same wavelength as that. Maybe, I don't know. I'm excited to check it out. Yeah, definitely. That's good. Well, um, guys, I think that's it. That's the last of the releases. Uh, a very fun month, I think, going back and, and watching all this stuff, especially, you know, revisiting Dr. Strangelove was a lot of fun. And then going back and seeing, you know, some of these new bits and pieces and reading more about Fantastic Planet has been a real joy for me. Um, do any of you guys have, you know, final thoughts on the month overall or, um, you know, what you would, uh, you know, maybe something unexpected that you discovered while, uh, you know, going through or preparing for this month's episode. I kind of uh, found a common theme and just in listening to everyone talk about movies tonight and a lot of these movies are transitions for their filmmakers. You know, Lemike is kind of Antonio only moving into what would become his standard model. And La Chienne is uh, like Aaron said, kind of his proper transition into a prominent sound filmmaker. Uh, Dr. Strangelove is Kubrick's first movie as producer uh, Clouds and Sills Maria is Asaias' first English language movie. So, yeah, and some interesting trends there. Oh, totally. And Fantastic Planet is, you know, Lalu moving from being like a short filmmaker oh, yeah. to like mm-hmm. going into feature filmmaking, uh, working with, you know, like actually having money to spend, even though it's not a lot of money, but he had, you know, it's certainly like a big shift from those short films that he did beforehand. I don't and also think that, French uh, animation. Al- sorry, yeah. sorry, right. that's that's okay. I, I don't I don't think that the Alexander Hall really had a big uh, piece of to play in that particular theme, but Robert <laughs> Montgomery did, right? So it 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 kind of works, even though he didn't direct. There you the film. go. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> How about clouds? <laughs> oh, I, I I like clouds just as a kind of a real contemporary tie-in. I mean, everything else is seems pretty throwback historical you know kind of days gone by but it's it you know it's just I, when i was talking with Keith just the other night you know criterion's uh, continuing investment in, in contemporary you know new release films and things that are happening right now uh, i think is very important i mean you know obviously they they bring back the treasures of you know decades or <laughs> we're almost getting to a century ago but uh you know the fact that they're still staying very much in touch with what's happening in new films and with contemporary directors, I think, is is just a really crucial ingredient to the whole 
uh, package that they present to uh, today's audiences. So I, I'm glad that Clouds of Sils Maria was in there, I, even though I haven't watched it all the way through. I've just kind of sampled it and just kind of had a little you know dip in. But uh, I'm glad it was part of this month's lineup. Yeah, clouds I meant, does seem I meant, like a good theme. Yeah. I meant actual clouds because uh, <laughs> uh, Strange Love, I guess, flying through the clouds, and uh, here comes Mr. Jordan. There's yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, La Chienne, a Fantastic Planet. I think there's some clouds there. So there you go. I'm, I'm sure the the criterion in the in the the boardroom on the big board. I'm sure that they <laughs> what clouds? Yeah, let's these? let's uh, get a little Joni Mitchell going here. Uh, looks like clouds are both sides now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Listeners, thanks for downloading the episode. And thanks for all of the feedback that you've been sending us, comments that you're making on Facebook, uh, tweets that you're sending us. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes to where you can find everyone uh, who was on tonight's episode, as well as links to where you can read more about the movies that we talked about. Um, Feel free to go and listen to some of the other more recent episodes that are in the master feed. If you're not subscribed already, definitely check out the new episode of uh, the Criterion Completion Hour where David is interviewed with Keith. And that one has uh, a really fun bit at the beginning where Keith goes through the uh, spine number irregularities and history. And uh, it was so much fun to listen to. Yeah, Keith is pretty amazing. I mean, the production values and just the... The, the sound clips he throws in there are just mind-blowing. I, I, you know, I hope he can keep it up. He's raised a pretty high bar for all of us. So <laughs> Definitely. Uh, keep it going, man. All right, everyone. We will be back around this time next month to talk about the July lineup, which is certainly another big one and uh, will be a lot of fun to go through. So we'll see you next month.